Hello and welcome back. This episode is made possible by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. Our patrons are Michael, Nathaniel, Brian, Brazos, Rasmus, Clay, Jason, Jordan, Ryan, Mal, William, Lyle, and George. Thank you guys. Thank you all so much for your support. You can be one of them by checking the show notes for a link to patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. This week we are staying in Wyoming and we're heading about 100 miles west to visit with a friend of mine in the Wind River Mountains. We talk about another federal grazing situation, how they're implementing joint monitoring programs, and what it's like to raise a family while juggling a busy multi-state sell-by trading empire. From Barcross Ranch in Cora, Wyoming, Katie Scarborough. So hi, Katie. How have you been? Hi, Brian. I'm good. How are you? Oh, looking for a rain like a lot of folks. And hopefully by this time comes out, the recording will make a liar out of me. But uh, other than that, the grass is green. I've got the right amount of cows on the ranch. And uh, we're going to see her through to the end of the year, at least. It's a wonderful thing. It's a good feeling. So it, we haven't we haven't really caught up for a while. I mean, I did see you down at Grassfed Exchange down in Fort Worth. And that was great to see you. And meet your husband and, uh, and see your son. That was, uh, that was really special. So tell us where you're at these days. Yeah. So I am in Cora, Wyoming. It's the Southwestern part of the state. Um, we're about 65, 70 miles Southeast of Jackson hole. Um, we actually sit basically in the wind river mountain range. We sit right in the foothills here. Um, and basically border, forest on two sides of us so we're right up there against the against the edge of it and that's that's kind of our main base um, but we're running right now over by Wheatland um, and Lusk area and then also running some cattle in Nebraska and California as well so I'm all over but I'm supposed to live in Cora so, <laughs> so okay so what's the operation there in Cora look like yeah so Cora, so Cora is basically a way for us to create, create value um, with the livestock that we purchase in other areas of the world, if you will. So what that means, uh, Cora has excellent, super strong basis. You know, we're pretty close to Nebraska. We're pretty close to that Omaha area. Um, so the closer we can bring cattle up to us, the more value we create. Um, and how we use Cora is basically as a pairing for other areas of the world, mainly California is where I stockpile a lot of these cattle. Um, we put them together out there, Utah, Idaho, Arizona, Nevada, Oregon, a um, couple out of Washington, and then some out of California. Um, stockpile them all right there. And basically how I determine stocking Cora is um, how much opportunity there is in the market. Um, and how many um, kind of units in production that's going to translate into on my AUDs or AUMs that I'm going to pull back off of this place while still monitoring the value that that's creating on those animals. Um, so that's basically how we use Cora. And then everything to the east of us, it's, it's all the same thing, except for it's a one-stop shop. So anything that I buy there is typically to the south or to the east, bring them into Nebraska, 
for the eastern part of Wyoming um, and run them there and turn cattle a single season there rather than kind of two seasoning cattle, if you will, like we do in Cora. Okay, now I know you're extremely intelligent and talented. So, so all these places are leased. Like you didn't, you didn't just magically appear the money to to buy these places. These are all leased places. I wish I had that ability. No, everything's leased except for Cora. Um, there's a gentleman here who owns this property, um, and he, yeah, I mean, he just owns this Cora. You know, about twelve thousand acres we operate on here, and then we have an additional almost thirty. Well, 25, 27,000 acres of Forest Service and BLM, we have leased too. It's all contiguous to the ranch. Um, so it, it's pretty, it's actually pretty handy. Um, and then everything else, California's lease. I just put that together a couple of years ago. The Nebraska deal was new last year. And then where we're at in Eastern Wyoming, I'm actually out with Sage Askin. I'm sure you know Sage. Yeah, we've met. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I'm out with Sage out there in Lusk right now. This is our first year and those steers are doing awesome out there, even though it's bone dry. So you place, you place some cattle with, with Sage and his crew. Mm -hmm. Okay. I did. Yeah. Well, there's only so many of me. So like the California deal I run, even though I have a crew on the ground there, and then the Nebraska deal, I'm just back and forth a lot, but Sage has been awesome because it's kind of, I think I've checked them twice. So it's been really great. We're also members of the Young Producers Assembly of Stock Growers Association, Wyoming Stock Growers Association here, officers together. So I talk to Sage pretty regularly. So I feel comfortable enough to uh, think that they're they're doing pretty well with him. So I haven't talked to him in a couple of months. Tell him I said hello. I will. I'll let him know. Next time you visit. So So tell me, before we got uh, going on the recording, you were talking about, you know, some of your federal grazing situations. So um, the least land you have, um, well, obviously you talked about the stuff over by Sage. Wheatland, that's probably some more of the same. Um, what private, are you leasing private party mm -hmm. and what about the Nebraska and the, and the California? Nebraska is all private and California is all private. So in Wyoming, that's where we're going to run on federal. Well, and we even run on state ground here too, um, which the, you know, the, the state's not, um, they're pretty open to whatever management strategies you want to implement. Um, we just get into some pretty um, uh, old school management techniques, if you will, when we're dealing with a lot of our federal grazing permits. Um, with oh, the BLM okay. what, so, so what are those old school management techniques? So basically, so the operating procedures for the Forest Service in this area, and I've talked to many people from all kinds of areas, and it seems to be the same, basically were written in the 70s. Um, so, you know, let's think about the 70s. Let's pile them in, let's not move them, and let's spread them out as far as possible, right? So you have salt grounds that have to be federally approved that are showing that you're distributing the cattle as much as possible. They do not want bunching. That's like the worst thing that you can do according to the federal government is to group cattle and to move them. Um, <laughs> which we all know is quite antithetical of the truth. Yes, um, it, it, it just I mean, federal policy 50 years behind reality. It's yes. 
Yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. We have a lot of situations where like, I mean, we would need a camp man to be able to regularly move those cattle. Um, and, you know, I think that's really the direction we need to be going. And that's what we're working with. So we are really blessed in this area. I've never lived anywhere like this, where all of our agencies love to collaborate. So we actually have a collaboration going on. I approached um, the Forest Service about this. So we have the Forest Service, um, Sublet County Conservation District, which is our conservation district, um, Game and Fish. And um, who's our fourth partner? Oh, me. <laughs> we all, it's been a long day already. Um, we all go out and we've basically deemed, okay, we all sit, sit down before we go. What are the measurements that are acceptable by the Forest Service to say, okay, we're either measuring change forward or measuring digression, um, or what is um, cost effective and time manageable for the conservation district in the state? So we actually got a state grant for this. It's pretty crazy. Um, the state is actually paying attention, um, kind of thinking, hmm, maybe we do need to change up some of this. Um, and unfortunately, the only way that can happen is with NEPA, which is a federal process of full environmental inventory. Basically, Sublette County for NEPA to actually happen will be easily 10 to 15 years. So 10 to 15 more years of set stock, scattering, and, and these, these landscapes aren't your prairie landscapes that have resiliency, have great soil, and can recover. I mean, we're ranching on granite rock here, okay? I mean, it's... I joke. I'm like, if we can ranch in Cora, Wyoming, you can ranch anywhere in the world. <laughs> what's what's the yearly precipitation look like in in Cora? Thirteen inches and half of that snowfall. Okay. Um, and are you dependent on irrigation? Do you do you have any irrigated pastures there? Yeah. So we're flood irrigating pretty extensively down on the ranch. To give you an idea, so like our sagebrush pastures, uh, there's about I would say ten thousand of the deeded acres are sagebrush, and two thousand are probably flood irrigated. Those flood irrigated pastures are equivalent in production to the 10,000 acres of sagebrush. Sounds about right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. it, it wouldn't take very many pivots and some, you know, sorghum sedan or BMR or even cover crop mixes to equal the amount of forage that I can grow on all my land. Yeah, it's well, and you know, what's kind of crazy is so I've actually looked at doing quite a bit of like broadcasting or inner sowing or any of those options in our meadows. And our climate is so harsh. We have about 35 frost free days that we can't hardly get. Yes. Yeah. We can't hardly get anything up. Um, so my, my efforts with cover cropping have not been stellar. Basically the only thing that I've gotten to come in are different clovers. Um, but we essentially have a domination of meadow foxtail basically what it is which according to some of the seed people i've talked to the only thing that can out compete meadow foxtail is this new like mutant meadow foxtail they bred to i don't even know some crazy <laughs> yeah super mutant foxtail that'll outbreed yeah. the foxtail we yeah. don't like but it'll end up yeah yeah so that was not an option it, so, why does it seem like we keep trying to invent better grasses and better forages that are just takes shit over and are harder to kill well, so, okay. So I was like, that's what I said. It's like, okay, so you expect me to plant this. And then once you guys realize maybe in five years that this is the worst decision ever, because it's like KR Bluestem of South Texas or, you know, something like that, you know, how would I even get rid of it? Well, you could also glyphosate and till. 
I'm like, no, <laughs> this is, yeah. But that's not yeah. how the world works. No, no. So anyways, that's basically a, just a no. So we're, we're pretty much unfortunate. I mean, we really struggle for some species diversity. We've seen quite a bit um, now that we have been doing some high density um, grazing now for several years versus before it's basically been an anaerobic flood irrigated duck pond situation under ice cold glacier water for the past hundred years. Probably a lovely compaction layer and all kinds oh. of microbial activity and fungal yeah. activity going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, what's amazing though, is just even looking at some meadows that are two years ahead of some other meadows that I have at a lower elevation, I mean, they are still lifeless on the west side of this ranch and the east side is just blooming with life and it's 500 feet higher up here. And that's because of? Taking the water off and running cattle. And you know, it's really interesting. We actually were, um, it, it, this is so fascinating. So I've only ever seen this in Hawaii. Have I run into this phenomenon? It was on Parker Ranch one time and they were talking about managing for thatch, managing for thatch. We don't manage for green grass growth. We manage for thatch so that our cattle are still able to eat. They have enough dry matter. Well, I came in here and was like, we're gonna blow this up. We're gonna put the half million pounds to the acre. You know, we're gonna change all this. And um, I actually started realizing that my sub table of, from water for my flood irrigation was so high that if I tore up my cork is what people call it here, that's about four to six inches deep. If uh -huh. I tore that up, I would literally have a standing pond under there. It's, it's flowing water. Once you get four to six inches deep, it's basically flowing water. It's eroded all that material out from under there. It looks like a video game in some places. If you jump on the turf, it will quite literally wave away from you. So that's just like a, a thin layer of soil that's pretty saturated on top of the rock. Basically. Wow. And it floats once the water's under it. That sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. So we backed it way up and I took a page out of Parker Ranch's book and, you know, uh, what feels like the tundra compared to that. And it was, I realized, I was like, oh my gosh, we have to manage thatch. Not how much I'm grazing, but we need to manage thatch or I'm going to have cattle sinking. I mean, we were roping cattle out of like all you could see was their head and the rest of their body was underground. Take them across something. Wouldn't take too many days of having to do that before I'd start figuring out a solution real quick. <laughs> I caught on real quick. I was like this, we're not doing any more of this. So yeah, it's been interesting. We only run like 20 to 20 to 35 is really the sweet spot. 20 to 35,000 pounds an acre. That's it. Okay. Any more than that. And I don't, I don't think it's good for our, our setting here what's the move frequency at that stock density um every day once okay. a day mm -hmm. yeah we're not moving more than that i mean it's hard i mean we'll have you know two to three thousand in one herd so it's a once a day um well all you have to do is just get one to move and the rest will follow right? sure no <laughs> i hear it. they move they're just um i find that they don't settle as well especially you know our sagebrush we're doing a lot of day herding. We're doing like these joint monitoring projects I'm talking about. We're out 
living on horseback with these things, you know, a small pasture is a thousand acres. So then when you put them in polywire twice a year for a couple weeks, it's, but they it just takes they, a couple weeks for them to kind of get used to it. Sure. And they're trained. They're trained. It's their behavior, the settling. And I think the shock to the gut too, from the sagebrush to the um, meadow situation and then back up. I think I really noticed a difference in digestion for four or five days. And it seems if you just kind of let them give them a day. I mean, I shouldn't say a day. We move them every 12 hours. So I guess that's twice a day. Um, morning and night, they get moved. Any rationale behind that? The times for twice a day, just when, when labor was available? No, um, we have, <laughs> you're never going to want to come to Cora if I keep talking. We have like apocalyptic level mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding from the flood irrigation. So if you move cattle when it's hot and the bugs are up, they'll get so bugged, they'll never settle again. Once they get it in their head that they can get away from those bugs. I mean, you'll watch horses do it too. When we turn horses out, I mean, they will go absolutely insane. So we don't let them out at the heavy bug times or literally all they'll do is run. Okay. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I could, another unique challenge to ranching it's, in Coral, Wyoming. It's yeah. I couldn't figure it out for the longest time. I was like, why are they not settling? I mean, we had people trying to horseback to settle them in cells. We use dogs. We, I mean, anything you can imagine. I started wind rowing. I'm like, maybe they need more dry matter. I'm going to wind row the edges and get them to stop. And nope. And finally, the foreman who'd been here for, you know, since the dawn of time, but thinks we're kind of crazed. He was like, hey, Katie, <laughs> they're running from the bugs. It's <laughs> like, oh, okay. And you wonder how long he watched you struggle holding oh, on to that little nugget. Or forever. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he just drops it and just walks off. You know, it's like, oh. hang on, let me pick my job off the floor and just deal with mm -hmm. that. So when it's 35 or 40 degrees every evening and morning, we move cattle. That's that's nice. Mm -hmm. And that's like right now, like 35 degrees in the morning. Mm -hmm. it was yeah, 35 to 40. It was like 75 here this morning. I know. And we'll only have, we will only have 30 to 45 days at best of that. Otherwise you're walking out to a hard frost every morning. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you were saying like your, your meadows are full of that foxtail is the sagebrush country. What, what's the forge like up there? I mean, you say sage, so I'm mm -hmm. imagining at least 50% sage, but there's gotta be something else. Oh, it's, yeah, so it's it's really interesting, actually, because that's one thing I've really struggled with since coming here, is there's not a lot of um, great documentation of what these landscapes looked like 100 years ago. Uh, I mean, the white settlers weren't up this valley, I mean, this valley right here till about 30 to 45, 1930, 1945. Wow. Um, the house that I live in was one of the actual houses that was built after the homesteading cabins and it wasn't built till 62 it's the age of my parents i mean it's crazy um that's you know that's wild okay yeah. so where where i'm at like settlement really started to happen here i think 1883 is mm -hmm. 1882 1883 is when the land here was open for settlement and 
there were some homesteads and I've actually flipped through the original abstract for the property that I sit, that I own here at my house, not, not anything out on the ranch. I need to do that someday though. Anyway, I've gone back and looked at the original land grants and I know the history of this area and most of the people that ended up staying didn't come here until after 1885. There was a huge drought in 1885, and a lot of that first wave of settlers said, screw this, we're out of here, and they left, because they had a summer kind of like we're having right now, where it was 105 every day, and it didn't rain, Yeah, and they couldn't get any crops to grow on the the soils that they'd only tilled up two or three years ago that made several amazing crops, which it probably did when it rained a little bit, so I guess what I'm getting at is we got the... The train came through in 1906, and it was in the mid-30s. It was Depression-era New Deal projects that brought the highway through, and they realigned all the roads out here. And it's, I've always kind of took that into perspective because I spent a lot of time on the East Coast in Hampton Roads, where there's literally houses that can be 300 years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, traveling around in Colorado, going out for Jeep trips, you know, a lot of that stuff dates back to the 1850s, 1860s, you know, even in the 1890s, you know, for the gold mining. And it's very interesting to hear that there was a pocket of the world in Cora, Wyoming, that wasn't even really settled or even seen much by white people until 1920s. So, you know, what's interesting is if you start to look at a lot of these really high elevation communities, like let's say, like communities that were probably started for trapping trade, not even cattle. There've been people in the South end of this Valley, what we call the desert, 50 miles South of here for hundred, 150 years settling it. What's interesting is as basically as land got gobbled up more, there was a super, super bad winter in 1880 down here that basically wiped out like every cow for three counties. Um, There's pictures of snow that was three, four stories high everywhere. It was amazing. Um, I mean, it looks, you would think that the pictures were edited except for they're so old, you know, you know that someone didn't edit this and create this image. Nobody Um, had Photoshop back then. Yeah, nobody had the Photoshop, no. Um, But it was interesting because people, it was like, oh, Oh my goodness, we shouldn't just send our cows all the way up into that north country. We should move up there, set up hay meadow, have access to water. That was some of the mentality that fueled the settling as people came up. And it's really interesting. Like if you look in places of, you know, Colorado, Oregon, um, Idaho, a lot of those communities, once you start getting really high up in there, like why the heck would anybody live at 8,000 feet? You know, I mean, my house is nearly at 8,000 feet, you know, that's usually because the views are really pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why would you bring your cows up here, you know? So, and it's interesting because historically where the cows were run, what they called the mountains was really the foothills that I live in now. And now where we run, I mean, we literally on the Northern end of our permits, we'll easily bring cattle down from 11, almost 12,000 feet and be scrambling on boulders to bring them down. So um, you're, you're the tree line. 
they can oh yeah mm -hmm. and they can walk it's actually kind of funny they can walk if they clear there's one peak they could walk all the way to dubois wyoming there's no fence we just ride it all well i mean if if you got a ten thousand foot mountain but range between you and anything well, else that will probably work for a fence i would imagine it, it's pretty effective but you know what's not super great is when it's a bunch of yearlings up there and there's no mama cows to keep everybody turned around and at a reasonable height and let's not scramble up that and you know all those things you turn 1300 yearlings loose up there and they get some crazy ideas <laughs> That's why I don't like to run your lengths too much. I like to, I like to stick with pears or dry cows. And I just, yeah. I like to do that because every once in a while, the yearlings will go nuts and decide that, oh, that fence looks interesting. Let's walk through yes. it. And then you got 2000 on your neighbors and he's all yeah. kind of mad. Yeah. That was us last week. We had them flip an entire bucking rail fence on a water gap. I mean, it was like, oh man probably 30 yards of fence, but I think everybody was kind of just playing with it, scratching against it, romping around and they flipped the whole thing over and just left. 2000 of them. <laughs> it's a good time. I, uh, I got to out myself. So last year, but just a little bit before seven, I was on my way to work. Like I was already out of bed. I was getting all my clothes. I was on my way. I get a phone call. Hey, you got a couple cows out on the road. All right, thanks. I'm on my way. I'll, you know, I'll get there when I get there. Yeah. You know, and I'm already okay. So we step it up in a, a gear and you know, get moving a little bit. And two or three minutes later, I get another call. Hey, you got about 20 cows out on the highway. Okay. Uh -huh. Thank you. I'm I'm on my way. I'll I'll be there as soon as I can. Make it out the door, get in the truck. Third phone call. Hey, you got about 200 cows headed to Coldwell. <laughs> okay i'm on my way so i finally get there and i had about 200 of a 200 head of clients cows and their calves were on the highway bags <sighs> packed man they were headed to town I mean, they weren't running they were just grazing Moving. very yeah. rapidly down the ditches yeah. um so we managed i managed to get up in front of them got them stopped and turn around head back to the gate fortunately i had a neighbor show up with his feed truck and he stopped him from going any farther east. I brought the bunch from the west. He flipped his siren on and sucked him right back through the gate. Like, whoo, thank you. So what I'm not saying is that gate was a little bit questionable to begin with <laughs> because it was a gate that burned up in the wildfire 2016. Mm. We got back through it and got the corner reset. Got a steel, got a nice steel corner there. Everything's great. Somehow that got missed on one or two of my big gate building rounds. Mm. and i had just kind of mumbled it together for lack of a yeah. better word yeah. <laughs> it was kind of looked a lot more substantial than it was they were just yeah. there at a cool morning and no reason why they were there because it's like it's a just a gate kind of in the middle of a yeah. fence. there's just no reason why they were there but there they were something pressed up against that fence bug you know mm. insect pressure who knows 200 cows in 15 minutes out on the highway. Jeez. Yeah, the highway thing, I can't. Oof. I would have trouble sleeping. I do sometimes, <laughs> especially when they're next to the highway. And, you know, when it's some of my half escape artist Corrientes that, you know, yeah. 
have you ever, you've been around many Corrientes? I unfortunately was three years ago. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. Okay. We got to hear this story. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, long story short, we kind of had a rogue order buyer. Okay. And Anybody not only were they, they were half Charlet, half Coriani, so they could travel, but they were also very strong. And I, honest to goodness, there was one in particular was like, I'm going to shoot him before the end of this season if he doesn't quit leading just rebellion after rebellion. I mean, they were horrible, but we ended up actually, finally, there were like, I don't know, a dozen or two that I was like, this is enough. And we whacked him out of the herd and took him to the sale barn. And it was much better after that, but it was horrible. I've always been told that those um, half Charlet Coriani calves, those smoke calves grow really well. Do you have anything to say about that? No, they really do. Well, I love a smoky, but probably the, my favorite thing to run is smoky steer, whether it, I mean, I, if the Corianis, Coriani Charlotte cross, if the horns are managed on them and you know, all of those issues, I'm fine, but I really like an Angus cow with a Charlotte bull. That's probably my favorite animal. They will outperform, I mean, down South up here, everywhere I've been, they will outperform everybody else. And the other thing I really like about them, they have good feet, I've found. They travel well, they don't get brisket up here. That's another big thing. Never yeah. had one die from brisket. They're, they're much hardier animals. I really like them. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I probably have all my black baldy friends rolling their eyes right now, but that's okay. <laughs> Everybody's entitled to their preference. That's right. Hey, and you know what? When they weigh 900 pounds or a thousand pounds, people are not that worried that they're not, you know, that they're Charlotte at that point. Unless you got all black, you may as well have some smoky steers in there. So they create a lot of value. Yeah, you like a bigger cow than I do. And I honestly, I think in mountain country, in a cooler climate, you can have a bigger cow. Yeah. Um, the big thing is they have to be able to travel. I mean, it's so steep here. They have to be able to travel. Um, and to be perfectly honest, Brian, we don't really have the, or I don't really have the luxury to, I got to put together so many cattle so fast in such a short period of time. I don't have the luxury to necessarily be choosy at what weight I think that steer is going to mature out at. I'm mostly just looking, is he green right now? Is he going to live? Does he have capacity would be my only physical requirement. Does he have that depth in his flank? Um, okay. you know, I don't want him to look like a rangy 800 pound cow. Even if that's what he's out of, I don't want him to look like that. Just don't look at my background too close. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if I was running cows, I'd be there all day. I, I absolutely hear you, but it's hard to sell their babies sometimes. So would you say that you're, you're kind of running a backgrounder type operation? Um, not so, you know what, that's interesting, not necessarily. So in the East, um, like those Nebraska area cattle south of there, La Junta, Salina, I'll buy some cattle out of Salina. Um, those cattle are actually background there in a yard in Nebraska and a lot there. And then we'll get them out on some cover crops and corn stalks and various things. In the West, 
this is what gets really interesting. I've never been in a situation where it pays to buy weaned cattle, but I buy weaned cattle out there. Um, just that how rough that country is out there and the kind of the ground that I have leased, um, it creates a lot more value to me to buy them. Like normally I've heard the rule of thumb, you know, if they're only 10 cents up, buy them every time those weaned calves are 10 cents up from unweaned. But I found that I really can afford to give like 13 or 14 and I'm still coming out ahead. Okay. In performance, head days are just everything for me on kind of how these lease arrangements work out there. What? So where is your, the ranch you have leased in California? It sounds like it's kind of maybe up North and up in the high country. It's in the high country, but it's actually in the Southern end of the Sierras. It's down by Fresno. So it's kind of South central ish California. Um, but it's basically right up against Yosemite. It's right That's, in that part of the world. I can see why you like to drive out there and check it out. It's <laughs> well, and you have to remember there's also six foot of snow and it's, you know, 15 degrees blowing 40 here in Cora. So we like to go to California, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really beautiful, but I'm telling you, when I went to look at this lease, honest to goodness, I was like, how are you ever going to get a yearling out of here? And two, how is a yearling ever going to make a living? I mean, knee jerk reaction. I would have said this thing needed to be stocked with goats, but they somehow do it. And you have, you have a labor team out there that I'm sorry, mm -hmm. I'm sure you said it before. No, you're fine. Yeah. So we have, let me think there's a foreman and three guys and then to get out of that thing though is usually a crew of a dozen to a dozen and a half every day and then we also fly a helicopter that sounds cheap well <laughs> it's actually so the this is a funny story but there's a neighbor who he kind of is a young guy that likes to get some fancy toys and he bought himself this helicopter. It's like the MASH style helicopter. Like you could okay. die in this thing. It's the glass orb, you know. Uh, I, I know exactly different. what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I I wish I could afford one. I know how much they cost and how much gas yeah. they burn an hour. Yeah. So anyways, he just likes to go and fly this thing and kind of is always wanting somebody to go with him. I have never, knock on wood, I've never paid this guy except for like a case of beer. <laughs> it's crazy he just likes to go fly and like we built a whole bunch of fence out there and we were trying to figure out how we could even get the rolls of wire out there i mean this country is that rough because we couldn't pack enough in horseback and it was like what are we going to do and he was like well i'll just take it up there in the helicopter and this guy tim he works for me he gets up there and comes back down and his eyes are like enormous and i was like tim what's the matter he goes well got up there and the pilot told me I better throw it for all I was worth because if it hit the skitter we would go down for sure it's <laughs> like what <laughs> so he said I'm hanging on with the door open on the side of this thing got a leg hooked in you know not tied on you know all these things I'm like oh this is such a nightmare please don't tell me that you will ever do that again we have to come up with some safety protocols and he was like I think we should <laughs> so, yeah I bet you do <laughs> So I have yeah, this we, image of I have this image in my head of like sitting him sitting in a helicopter with like three rolls of barbed wire on his lap uh -huh. and they get to the spot and he's got like hold the door open and pitch yeah. him out. 
Yeah. I mean, and Tim literally weighs, I bet you 140 pounds soaking wet, you know, and he's supposed to be throwing these giant rolls of wire off the helicopters. Like, oh my gosh, you guys. Yeah. I don't even know what a roll of barbed wire weighs. A lot. I for sure could not throw one from chest level far enough out. There's no way. That would be work. It would definitely be a challenge. Yeah. 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 Poor Tim. He was not about it. So we've got to come up with a new plan. Free or not, I think it's still not cheap enough if something happens. So. Yeah, for sure. There's, it's hard to put a cost on a human life. Yes. So what, um, sounds like you're on horseback all the time. Yeah. So, well, yeah, I, my winters are basically, I mean, six to seven months out of the year, I am phone and computer nonstop trading, watching sales, watching markets. That's all I do. Um, and then I would say there's about five months when we're here in Cora, I'm horseback a bunch. Like, I mean, I'm horseback, so I'm in California, but it's like a day or two once a month, you know, not anything crazy, but here in Cora, we make a lot of miles and our big thing is managing the big herd and it's super challenging in these sagebrush ecosystems super challenging i mean a mistake here is something my kids could see you know when they're outside versus a mistake with a big herd oklahoma texas something i'm used to you probably fix it in what four or five years at most it depends on the mistake sure Sure. But it's doable, right? It's not yeah. like, oh my gosh, I'll never fix this in my lifetime. That's what it is up here. I mean, when you get to those, those super dry, cold environments, you know, mm-hmm. it, it takes so long for the biological processes to do their job. Like yes, what I have in my mind is like uh, the Arctic tundra down in Colorado, you know, yes. way up high in the San Juan, you know, 12, 13,000 feet, you know, yep. it could take 25 years for the plants to recover from a footstep. Yes. Higher track. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm actually shifting to, I think at most our uplands here need grazed once every three years. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, you'll be trotting around out there and you'll literally ride past a cow pie. And I'm like, I think that thing's probably older than me. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, it's quite literally just that slow and that dry and there's there's just not topsoil in a lot of places you know i mean we're literally riding around on granite granite oh my gosh granite (laughs) granite gravel that was a sticky one granite gravel you know up here so and, and it's a lot of miles i mean that's something you were alluding to the other day i ran the tracks tracker horseback and this was a particularly long day but we went 21 miles before we stepped off I was that's, beat down. That's a long day. <laughs> it is. It is. But typical would be more in that 10, 10 to 12, you know, and I'll be back in the office for three or four hours in the afternoon. 10 to 12 miles in a side-by-side, three, four hours in the office in the afternoon. That sounds very familiar. Not quite a side-by-side, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I have a roof that keeps the, you know, it keeps the sun, at least a little bit of the dust and most of the rain off. That's a good thing. That man living up here, everything is tougher. Every plant, every animal, every person. That was one thing we had friends come visit this weekend and they're really good friends, but 
the wife was like, Katie, I'm saying this because I really care, but I think you need to start using some eye cream since moving up here. And I was like, what are you talking about? She was like, you look so much older in the few years that you guys have moved up here. And I was like, wow. I mean, I really kind of looked at some pictures and I was like, this is the sun at 8,000 feet. I mean, you can, I will get a sunburn. I'm, I mean, I'm wearing short sleeves today, so I shouldn't say that I've been inside most of the day, but I'll wear, you know, a scarf, gloves, hat, the whole shebang all day long. But if you don't have that on, you could get a sunburn before 8 a.m. I'm not kidding. Because the sun's up by five in the summer, like broad daylight at five. And it probably doesn't get dark there till what, 1030 right now? Yep. Sunset's at about 1023 or 24 right now. Oh, that's yeah. fun. A little farther north and you almost have daylight. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, because I wonder about it a lot as far as how many heat units we actually are getting, because I always talk about and think about how much colder it is up here and wonder if heat units is part of our problem, but it would be super interesting. I'm sure someone's done it somewhere, but I haven't been able to found, find it, you know, compare heat units in central Texas, central Oklahoma, the heat units up here, and I bet they would be pretty close. Like heat units, like meaning radiative power from the sun yeah like available energy for plants to grow oh i think there's more at high altitude yeah and and yes and so again it goes back to the factors of because that's what you always hear people say up here well it's too cold for this to recover or it's too cold for xyz or we're at nine thousand feet right here this will never get a chance and i'm like well I mean, yes, those are contributing factors, but I don't think that's what we can blame a lot of the issues that we see up here on. Um, it's not just the cold, it's, you know, lack of moisture, the slowness of the biology, you know, all these things. Um, but I think it really tries to get passed off. Well, we're under snow for six months. Like, well, how much sun did we actually receive though in our growing period? And we're just not utilizing it properly. It's a good question. It's a really good question. You know, that's the business that we kind of we're in, but we don't really talk about. We're in the solar capture business. We're taking oh, yeah. that we're taking that solar energy and converting it into a form that is usable by humans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and one thing, too, that I think is so interesting up here is how powerful our grasses are. Um, you know, we're we are 98 percent cool season, 98 percent. Um, I don't know what percentage base my forage probably is that's perennial, but I would say it is, it's huge. You don't see the weed problems like you really kind of see in the South. Um, but I mean, when those cattle are going out there and getting a bite, it packs a massive punch compared to the quality of forage they could be getting somewhere else. And that's the other thing that I just, I sit and kind of just look around and watch is like, wow, if we could, everybody talks about, all right maybe I only grow 500 pounds of forage to the acre, which is a lot of my country. Um, and I'm honestly kind of proud of it if it is growing 500, but all right, let's say we could get that up to a thousand and everyone says, oh, well, you could only double your stock density. And I really wonder about that because once you're just actually looking at the nutrient density available at some point, yeah, an animal's going to plateau. They need so much dry matter intake and yeah, you know, you can create that whole argument, but I think these landscapes, if they could be shifted in their management, you know, if we can get the forest service to change, if we can get the BLM to change, 
if we can get what limited sagebrush acres are actually privately held, if you could get that to change, I think it's a pretty fascinating thing. Well, think about like the cattle drives, the historical cattle drives, when they used to bring all those cattle all the way up here. It's not because there was ever a population up here. They were loading them on the railroad. You know, why were they doing that? And how much better was the forage base probably way back when, when they were doing that? And that's, that's something I just sit and wonder all the time. So I'm like, how much wildlife population, which we have big game up here, and how many cattle were they actually grazing compared to where we're at now? You know, and I don't think that we need to be growing 2,000 pounds to the acre up here, because that's what everybody says. Those mountains will never grow, you know, X, Y, Z. And I'm not here to say they will, but what they do grow is some pretty powerful stuff. Uh Interesting you bring that up. I've been thinking a lot lately about, about what the plains looked like, not mm-hmm. just since we shot, since we extirpated the buffalo or since we, you know, trapped all the beaver out. So we can go all the way back to say 1500 when the Spanish let loose their horses mm-hmm. and the Creole cattle that became the Corrientes and Longhorns, and they let loose their European diseases that I mean, by some theory, and this is theory and opinion from what I've heard, between 95 and 98% of Native Americans were wiped out post-1500, post-European contact. So by the time, you know, 1650s rolled around and, you know, the history we were kind of taught starts, like, you know, the Mayflower and the Pilgrims, Plymouth Rock, that kind of stuff. Those, those early immigrants to this continent encountered a civilization that was maybe a hundred years into recovery from a cataclysmic event that depopulated everybody they knew and they had no writing. And if you lose that percentage of your population, how much of that oral history really survives? Uh Uh Uh-huh. So, that can be debated still. We know that the, we know the Europeans came through in their search for beaver to make hats and killed all of the beaver. And we can kind of see some of the, you know, we're seeing some of the effects of that now. We're seeing that, you know, beaver starting to go back in and, and, and move back into places where we've restored the habitat. So I'm really, what I've been wondering about lately is they say that there were like 60 million bison something like that yeah 60 million bison so were they were the bison overpopulated and headed for a resource crash because of lack of 200 years of hunting pressure by the native americans that's that's something i've been kind of kind of struggling with so maybe our perspective on the historical production of our rangelands and you know where we can graze in the mountains and the meadows maybe it's a little bit skewed or yeah, I, guess, I, I guess something else that comes to mind now is my dad told me a long time ago 90 percent of what we think we know might be 10 percent correct <laughs> it's very true that's i always ask myself that question in management like is this an actual fact or is this a supposition because i should you know alter my plans accordingly but no you bring you bring up a super just a super interesting point i've been wondering that a lot up here too especially with 
the big game and how much we see these populations affected by human population. Should these animals actually be this high? Were these animals ever even up here? Um, you know, all those questions. Do it, does an elk actually want to graze at, you know, 13,000 feet? Probably not. No, the elk know? want to be on the plains. Elk were plains animals. It, okay. So I wonder those kinds of questions all the time. And what's so interesting, again, going back to our forest service, going back to our game and fish, these management plans are written for this adapted. Okay, we have this much population up here, this much population up here. Oh, then we're going to feed them all in the feed grounds in the winter. We're going to extend your permit even higher up because you're getting more grizzly kill. So you need more acres. You know, all the, the, the I don't know, the thought process, process of it all. And again, like going back to, I just don't th think we even ultimately know potentially what we're managing for. Um, you know, we can look at what do people always like to quote the NRCS, um, what do they call those the ecosite descriptions? And then it has like the evolutionary step and progress and then climax. Yeah, ecological vegetation. site description. That's it. Yes. The climax vegetation of the ecological site description. Yes. How do they know? Actually, look at those things. It's insane. It's like, okay, you're basically managing this to go back to maybe what it looked like 100 years ago. And that is 100% a manipulated environment. I mean, it's, I just, yeah. I mean, and not to say, oh, we should just not do any, that's not what I'm suggesting. But I would say, I think we're kind of doing the same thing, but maybe making ourselves feel better about it in some ways. Like, oh, I'm managing for this much percent canopy cover of sage and this much percent of blue bunch grass and this percent of, you know, X, Y, Z. And once I achieve those things, that's what this landscape was supposed to look like 100, 150 years ago. And ultimately, I mean, we might be managing under the same context of manipulation, but in a feel good manner, right? right. Like, oh, this is what NRCS says is climax vegetation. Interesting. <laughs> but if we can get there without the use of fossil fuels and machinery, if we can get there only using our biological tools, mm -hmm. I say that's a win. But as soon as we start sure. pulling other tools yeah. out of that toolbox, that's when our that's when your point total starts to go down rapidly. Yeah. Well, and I mean, let's let's just be. I mean, the butterflies and rainbows feels good, but let's just be realistic. Is we're very consumptive organisms and this planet is never going to look the same <laughs> as before we entered it, you know? Um, but you know, that's not to say like, absolutely every step we can make towards perennial populations and ground cover, all these things. Absolutely. Um, sometimes I just wonder though, if we're actually achieving what historically was truthfully present. What is it our friend Dave Pratt likes to say? There's no use hitting bullseyes if you're aiming at the wrong target. <laughs> I haven't heard that one. That does sound like a Davism, but. <laughs> hmm. Okay. So let, let's talk about Katie. Where are you from? And how did you get to Cora, Wyoming? Yeah, um, I was raised in Northwestern Oklahoma up by a tiny town called Aline, but Woodward is kind of the closest population if you I, will, I know where Aline is I know where Woodward do you really is. Woodward's two hours away I used to go down there to the sail barn 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. That's right. I forget that you're that close. Um, yeah, so I was raised out there. I was raised um, on a yearling outfit. Uh, we actually bought cattle out of Georgia growing up. That was our thing. Southeast cattle. So boy, did we grow up knowing how to, unfortunately, doctor and, you know, all those things. But uh, we made a shift in trying to remember what year it was. I was in high school and my dad and I, we sold out of yearlings and my dad and I actually partnered on a whole bunch of cows, went to college, started a beef business with my dad, um, did that from college, I went to college at A&M, Texas A&M, did animal science and rural entrepreneurship, ag economics, which is the best program, the best educational pursuit I've actually ever had was the rural economics program there at Texas A&M, Dr. Reister. Um, I'm still involved with that program. I still travel down there once or twice a year. It's just the greatest program. Um, anyways, and we sold beef for a while and then I decided to get busy. So I kind of ran that for my dad for a while. And then once I got out of school, I went to TCU ranch management and did their master's program there um which I don't recommend doing <laughs> I was convinced <laughs> that I was gonna go well no I was I would not recommend doing the master's level there's like the regular certificate and then the master's and I was convinced I needed all these credits that I was gonna use and it literally almost killed me but next, next time I see I'll have to ask what you really think about TCU's range management program no 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 <laughs> the, it, there's some good and there's some need for change but um anyways i moving on doing the master's program in one year just don't do it in one year but or nine months anyways um so out of there i actually consulted for a little bit and then i ended up on a ranch um this is how i'm dearest dearest friends with deborah clark i ended up being emory and deborah's neighbor in henrietta texas um managing a ranch there we went from, I don't know, I guess I didn't have my fill of the beef, the run, the never ending sprint of selling beef. And I, um, we went from weaning the first calves within my first two weeks there to selling beef at a wholesale level within six months, built a facility. Oh, it was, oh man, did that for a while, a couple years, two, three years. And it just was not sustainable when I left they hired five people to do what I was doing okay like that's how it was it was a lot um definitely was an excellent life lesson and how to appropriately manage my time and to create boundaries and learn to say no and not have to be in charge of everything so, <laughs> um I've I've learned and, that one a little late too yeah it's so hard I still struggle um yeah. And then I actually consulted for a while and traveled around and I actually ended up um, just looking initially to consult up here. I met a gentleman in New Mexico while doing some consulting out there. And he told me about this ranch and what was going on. And Jason's a great, um, he's a very ethical landowner. Um, he manages his investments, but he has a strong, strong land ethic. And that was something that was really attractive to me because it was somebody who actually had a strong land ethic, but wanted to make money. 
not just do something that makes you feel good and don't worry about the cost. Um, so anyways, I ended up coming up here a couple of times and Jason and I visited quite a bit and ended up interviewing and um, I actually ended up up here from that. Um, we've been here almost three years now. It's our third full season. Um, and it has been just the most enormous learning experience for these landscapes and getting to be involved in industry and trade in so many other parts of the U.S. And um, it's definitely allowed me to develop the ability I mean, to trade, to identify those undervalued areas. And Cora is so unique because it just helps you create so much value. Um, that's the one thing Cora really has going other than super strong grass, it <laughs> creates a value. Otherwise everything else pretty much works against you here. But <laughs> you go anywhere in the country and ranch. Oh, I hate this question. <laughs> so that is such, yeah. Yeah, I need to be careful what I say. I think cattle can be managed wonderfully in the West and in the mountains. I do think that there's a lot of agencies and a lot of people that vastly need to improve on that. Um, that being said, these landscapes are really hard. They're just really hard. You know, they have all the rules going against you. Gravity, distance, precip. You know, all the rules of thumb for ranching are pretty much thumbs down when you get up into the West and the Rocky Mountains, especially. Um, that being said, it is a lot of fun. Um, but my answer is ultimately be Kansas, Oklahoma, Northern Texas. It's just, it makes so much sense for so many reasons, but, you know, production capacity wise, ecologically, all those things, cost of production. Um, and two, it's such an interesting thing to me because you have so much opportunity available all around you to the East and the West for the right trade. You're sitting in the T of the value corridor, you know, and you have access to both sides, which is so fascinating because there's rarely a place like typically you get far enough West where you're boxed to the West or you're far enough to the East that you're boxed East because you're dipping back into those central cattle but that is such an interesting area to me because you kind of have two different places where you can make it work. Say the West is in a drought versus the East is wet versus this versus that. The timing's never the same and when that value is available either. Um, so Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, but um, it sure is fun up here though. I was, um, so what I'm thinking about right now is I, I remember the wisdom from probably 15, 20 years ago that said, if you want a ranch west of 100th Meridian, it's going to be hard. <laughs> and I think that line keeps moving to the east. Yes. And, oh, somebody told me, I think it was my dad told me he was talking to Wally Olson the other day. You know Wally, don't you? Mm -hmm. Yep. And Uncle Wally said that uh, he thought that he wasn't going to do a whole lot of business west of highway, west of Interstate 35 anymore. This is just too inconsistent and too dry west of 35. And I'm like, well, mm -hmm. crap, that's a hundred miles east of me. <laughs> yeah. But I, the point about Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas is well taken. And I think it was my friend Hobbs that said this, like, cause he just moved from Oregon last fall. Like mm. little, little under a year ago. 
-hmm. he got rid of his he, he got rid of the place in oregon and he moved to lufkin texas oh he can graze year-round there's population close by it's in the middle of the country the summer's not terrible i mean it it kind of makes sense you know like yeah how's he doing socially in lufkin um <laughs> probably about like he was doing in Oregon. <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have to, uh, maybe I'll have to get him back on the show and, uh, and talk about how much of an outcast talk about his experiences at the Lufkin <laughs> coffee shop and feed store. Yeah. Yeah. But he's, uh, you know, he, he's one of those Corianti people like me. He likes mm -hmm. his horn cattle. And mm -hmm. of course, when he does that and he's moving them four times a day, you can only imagine what the neighbors think. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I, I know Hobbs well enough. He probably doesn't give much of a crap about what they say about him at the coffee shop. There you go. He probably drives by with his French press and laughs at him anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good policy. It's a good policy. So but... trading, you keep talking about trading. So mm -hmm. tell me what do you what do you mean by trading? Mm-hmm. Um so basically, I mean, what I, how I create value and what I spend my time doing is basically figuring out how many undervalued animals can I purchase, hold for a long enough time in Cora, most of the time, let's use Cora to keep it simple, in Cora that I can get closer to that fall board, get stronger and stronger basis. Um, basically, okay looking at my snow tell, how much snow pack I have, how much, cause that's gonna determine everything. How many can I buy? How many are available where that I can warehouse? I don't care what they do. I mean, I do not care if they put on a half pound. I don't care. Um, I'd honestly probably rather them do that, have lighter cattle to bring in that are gonna do better, but I can stock more of them. Um, and then, which I do end up buying heavy cattle a lot of the time, but they're really green. Um, and bring them here and okay, how long can I hold them to get them towards that fall value to lower my basis risk? And how many can I optimize doing that with? Um, and basically it's that ridiculous saying that always confuses everybody. Like you make the money when you buy them, you know, <laughs> it's 100% true. That's all I do. Um, and it's been quite a network of people to develop. And I try to make sure nobody has a crossover territory. Um, but I, like I have a Southwest Idaho guy, I have a Western Utah guy, I have two California guys, I've got an Oregon guy, I've got a Northern Arizona guy. And these and, are order buyers, right? Mm -hmm, yep. And it's pretty, um, it's interesting because I don't get to check my cattle super regular, but my crew on the ground, I require a video off the truck. Everybody's tagged to a source that's specific to a location and specific to the buyer. And then everybody has to be on an inside pasture system and basically monitored for X period of time. And then all the doctoring, because there's so many calves, I don't care about if it's number two, three, one, eight, you know, whatever. I just want the guy's name that written down that bought him and where he came from. And then everybody gets scored. What percentage of the sickness did you have? What percentage of death loss did you have? And then at the end, the cut pile, what percentage of the cuts did you buy? Um, and that's kind of how I manage all of them. 
um if there is anything off the truck that's just like oh my gosh this is ridiculous why would you try to slip this in on me I, i'll just send them back i'll call the guys on the ground i'm like cut them out even if it's one put them back i'm not doing this Order and buyers hate it when you send anything <laughs> back on the truck. So like, angry, so angry. They never will do it again, you know, and don't get me wrong. Like I get if there's 20 coming through the ring and there's one stinker, it's like, okay. But if this is a repetitive issue, uh, yeah. I mean, that's what kills us is how many cuts we ultimately end up with. It's, it's three hours, three and a half hours to the sale barn up here, which blows my mind to the closest sale barn. Three and a half hours. Isn't that nuts? You got to go over the mountains. So you're like just burning the fuel. You don't go with the gooseneck. I hire a semi to take all my cuts, two or three trips. I could, I was just sitting here trying to think of how many big auctions I could hit in three hours. Yes. I mean, yes. it's, it's so, it is so amazing how, like you want to talk about issues in the West, but how limited the resources are that's available. Like a sale barn, you can't get cake. You might not even be able to get fence posts. You can't get a cake feeder. I couldn't find a no-till drill in the western half of Wyoming or the eastern side of Idaho. I mean, it's just like resources that we're so used to, I think, down south and are so commonly available. That's just, it's not how it works up here. You mean there's not a tractor supply in uh, in Cora that you could just run down to and buy a pallet of posts and so there's so there's a Ridley's but basically how it works is when the truck comes across I-80 the entire or not a Ridley's it's um what do they call it here Baumgars Baumgars is the tractor supply of the north if you ever see one just stop on in but uh once so they only want to send so many trucks because populations are so small basically it's like well if they have room by the time the truck gets to the end of the interstate and there's some still on there We'll get you some, but it might be this month or next month. And it's like, lady, I need this yesterday. You know? <laughs> that doesn't happen. No. A mechanic to get a mechanic to work on the tractors, the neighbors, we will pool our money together and basically create a list of stops because it takes so far to get the John Deere or cat guy or Kubota, whoever to get them out that like four or five of us will have a little call chain and I'll keep a sticky note of who has how much work before we can get a mechanic to come out. Wow. It's, I'm telling you, it's like a hundred years ago up here. It's just, it's slow. Just resources are not available. Do you think that learning how to live with less is going to insulate you from future risk of more supply chain disruptions? Oh, for sure. After living up here, I have gotten really confident in how little a yearling actually needs and how much more you can actually do with your animal husbandry and really your grazing. Um, I've gotten really into like Fred's stuff, Fred Provenza, all of his work and these big bunch of yearlings. Knock on wood, I have never lost more than 1% to actual death loss or sickness. Yeah, let me find some wood. I need to do yeah. some knocking on that Isn't one that too. Crazy, but anytime, again, it shows you. I think the power of the forage base up here. Anytime I've lost more than one percent, it's like been attributable to like a cold snap or a weather event mm -hmm. or or some other event. It's not a nutritional thing or a disease thing that's ever happened to me. 
Yeah, I feel like trading yearlings, you can really run into it. Like, so my first year, I had a whole bunch of Hawaiians. You want to talk about a wild experience? We ran a whole bunch of Hawaiian cattle, and uh, they were, I mean, they were so sick when they showed up. I thought, this is, this is going to be. How long does it take to ship them from the islands to the mainland? So that's what's interesting. They um, used to come on a ship and that was like, they put them on, steamed them back across as fast as possible. And I can't remember what the total timetable was, but it, I mean, it was not good. Like it was several days kind of thing. And then now they do them on C-130s, it's crazy. They have, yes, yes. They have these crates. They're giant. They look like a shipping container, but they have all these holes perforated in them. Yeah, yeah, Load yeah, yeah. them all up, load them in there. And they show up within like four or five hours and are dumped out on the coast. But by the time that the Hawaiians actually get them rounded up, they get them down to the airport, like all of that. It's probably like, a couple of days. It's like a 24, 36 hour deal. The ones that live, you can't kill them, but. I imagine that airplane ride is a little stressful. Yeah. The shrink on them is crazy. Well, and so this is super interesting. When you buy cattle in Hawaii, there's no shrink put into the cattle and there's no slide. So when you go out and bid cattle in Hawaii, you just look at the whole year round bulls in their calf crop. (laughs) And they're breeding 12 months out of the year because they're on green grass year round. You look at the whole calf crop and offer a price per pound on the whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's some cuts are allowed, but basically if you start to cutting on them too deep, like I know a lot of guys that they weren't ever allowed to come back. Like you pretty much have to take the whole thing. So no slide, no shrink. There's no sort of check weight. You literally just, they drive you through their cattle and then you just make a bit. Okay, cow trader Katie, we got to pause for a second. Okay, shrink I get, which is the amount that they amount of weight that they're going to lose in shipping, which is you know a pretty consistent thing. Mm-hmm. Explain slide to me in in words that a fifth grader can understand. Slide. So let's say I put my cattle in the U.S. They're going to weigh seven hundred pounds, Brian, and they come in and they weigh seven hundred and twenty pounds. Shrunk put a 3% on them on the ground. They weighed 720. So we have 20 pounds, 0.2 of a hundred weight that they're going to be over. Typically what I see, it makes me crazy, but you can't get a fair slide anymore. You usually see a halfway up, halfway down. So you'll see like an eight, four. So for every, however many pounds they're over, you're going to slide eight cents backwards for however many pounds they're under, you're going to slide four cents the other way. So you really get discounted. You don't create more value necessarily having the lighter animal. You do, but only half as much value. They're not going to give it all to you. So if you had 20 pounds that were over, you know, times your eight cents, and we sold them to you at a buck 50, you know, it'd be a buck 50 minus that what? 0.16. And we'd adjust our price there. So 720 times 1.4, whatever that would be, 48, whatever it is. Does that make sense? I think so. I'll, I'll listen again when I'm editing and actually write down the math, but yeah, I think that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So your 0.2 times your eight cents and then a buck 50 minus that adjustment would be the price you get per pound. So it'd be so like what one point, a cent and a half per pound discount. 
but yeah, 1.6 basically per pound discount. Okay. And then you put that back on a hundred weight. So it'd be a buck 50 minus that 1.6. You'd be at 148.4 per hundred. Versus if it had gone the other way in your favor, rather than obtaining that fully value, you'd only get half as much. Yeah, I, I get that. And I, I've looked at superior and I see that slide symbol and sometimes it's balanced and it sometimes yeah. it's unbalanced. So now I, now I understand yeah. that a So bit. typically if it's unbalanced, typically if it's unbalanced, um, you're going to have to have a pretty serious weight stop on there. Or I've seen buyers really bulk at cattle. Um, I normally offer it if I offer the eight four. I really like to do no weight stop, but man, the, the order buyers are just getting to where they want a thirty pound both ways, or they just don't like to touch them, and they still want the eight four. It's like this year, I'm afraid that's how I'm going to have to let mine go. Well, you know, order buyers got to eat too. <laughs> I mean, I get it. I get it. <laughs> you know, and, Except for and, they're probably buying for JBS. <laughs> and if you want to do the sell buy, either you're going to be spending six days a week in the barn yourself, or mm -hmm. you've got to have guys that you can trust to do it. And that's, that's kind of the problem I've always seen with it. You know, yes. like yeah. there's all kinds of opportunities in the beef and cattle business to generate extra value. But yes. the trouble is I can't clone myself and it right. takes, you know, I have to be, you know, to a yeah. large extent, I got to be the guy doing that. Big problem I've always seen with the sell buy is how do you trust an order buyer? How do you find the right order buyers and how do you trust the order buyers? That sounds like you came up with a great system to, I don't know, grade them or, yeah. or performance. So I grade them? them. I grade them and they don't want to be it's kind of a pride thing, you know, they don't want to have something turned back on them Two, another really great thing is if you're not sure about someone, um, you don't want to do it with like some, which is very hypocritical of me, but like some really young guy that all he wants to do is <laughs> drive around in his truck and hit a barn every day and see some buddies along. You, you don't want that. You want, in my experience, you want the old guy who's been doing it since the dawn of time. The guy can't even tell you what's in the sale catalog that day. Cause he can't text you the picture. You got to call the sale barn secretary. Like that's who you want. <laughs> <laughs> and odds are that guy probably has some money if he knows what he's doing. And I found the best way to make sure everybody's interests are mutually aligned. Hey, let's, let's 50, 50 on 250 head this first year. Let's do 500. Let's 50, 50. Them. Okay. And most of the guys would be like, well, why do I want to do that? I just want to buy them for you. Well, I'll still pay you to buy them full price. I'll still pay you, you know, a buck a hundred and I will finance the cattle, but I want seven and a half percent back on my finance of the cattle purchase. And then you're going to pay all the direct costs and we'll see how we settle up in the end. That will tell you real quick what kind of, I mean, if they're just immediately like, oh, no, no, I don't want you to buy from me. Because they're going to try to cheat you at some point. Yes. Yeah. Somewhere. Somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's, but that's a really good one I found. And if they've been trading cattle long enough, they don't have enough money to trade 200 steers, 250 steers. You got a problem. You know, that's probably shouldn't do anything with them. You need a central Texas buyer. I know a guy. <laughs> Oh, man. You might like him. I mean, he's an older guy. He just you know, uh, hits one or two a week and 
That's mm. some video trades. There we yeah, go. We'll, we'll talk later. There we go. So how did you figure out the whole sell by marketing? Um, man, I, I just kind of had to do it. So when I took this job, um, Jason, the gentleman, Jason Spaeth, who owns this ranch, who hired me, he is just, he's a great guy, but um, he, he, um, he's very involved in the sense of he wants to understand ecological return, but from a business perspective, he's really great and offering a lot of autonomy. And off the bat, it was pretty much like buy X thousands of steers and make me this amount of my money. And that was it. <laughs> and you were like, uh, okay. I guess I better figure out how to do that. So, yeah. So I got really, really into, well, number one, we have a cattle fax guy who good old Patrick Linnell. I think that guy like quakes in his boots when I call, cause he's like this girl. Um, <laughs> he's probably so tired of me. So I have all these crazy ideas. I'm like Patrick, listen to what I thought up last night. We'll talk it through, but basically it's just incessantly being in the market in any form possible cattle facts watching that's when I couldn't figure out how to get the camera on when you're on because I was sitting in my office working but I'm watching the superior yearlings that sell today you know um it's just constantly being in the know watching the cash trade watching the board I literally I mean I have it on my phone I'm always refreshing what's the move um and then I think the second part of that that I've learned too is being disciplined. Like I calculate my thresholds, I figure them, and then I go to bed. Like there's no emotion to this. And I don't give my guys, I think where people get in a lot of problems is like, oh, but if you're close, this is price I want you to spend. But if you're close and they look really good and they look like they have a lot of value, I trust your judgment if you need another dollar or two. Yeah. Like if you spend one more dollar, you're paying for it. So don't spend it you know and I think that that's the big thing that I was able to learn and like sticking to the discipline like just the fundamentals pays out astronomically especially at first I was so scared I was like I'm not going to get this place stocked it was a super high market when I was trying to buy back my first time and so that was what really made me start looking I was like I have to find something to average this out so even if I need to buy some cattle to make my head days right on my price on my lease, then, okay, I got to find X number undervalued and be dang sure that I can get them and then have the right blend, right? Do I have so many of these that I can blend with these and shaping those cattle right? Because every single buyer you have and every single rep you have will want to just pick them apart. And before people come look at my cattle, I'll always tell them like, these are the rules. You cannot sort like this. You cannot take these out. There's X number. I know of these, you know, like I think I have a truckload of Herefords. You cannot touch them. If there's a Hereford in the cut pile, unless he has a bad eye, he's getting on the truck. Like, that's how we're creating value. So I think it's, you know, balancing your, your quality um, and using discipline, even when it's just like, Ooh, you just have to have nerves of steel. Sometimes you just let them go all day long at a half cent past where you want to be, but it'll pay off. And I think that's what I really had to learn more than anything. So you have a, like, did you read Bud Williams or have you been to Wally's sell by school or any of that stuff? No. So, um, one of my best friends went to Wally's school and I like, give me all your notes. Cause I've never had time to go. Um, which is ridiculous. I need to go. You know who I really want to go to? There's a guy in Nebraska now. 
do you know him? Let me look him up. He's the, he does a trade school up there now. And I have just heard phenomenal things. I've talked to him over the phone a few times and I really want to go see him do his school. Well, now I'm waiting for this name. I even have my pen ready so I can write down another really? oh, no. guest suggestion know. list. I'm looking. Uh, yeah, he's he's a new Doug Ferguson. Okay. Yeah. And I have just heard the greatest things about him. Not that I mean Wally's school is great. Um, but Mr. Cattlemaster.com cracks me up. But um yeah, I really want to go to his school. And it, it's pretty intense. It's three, I think it's three and a half days, which is kind of long for one of those deals, but he's apparently just really great. So I would like to go to his school. But well, now that it's actually been said out loud, I, at least two other people have written in and said, Hey, you should have Doug Ferguson on one of these. Oh, really? So yeah, I guess yeah. we'll have to do that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we're I'm friends with the right Doug Ferguson on Facebook because I do see him posting okay. stuff about cows and, and marketing uh-huh. every once in a while. So. He's in Nebraska. He lives in Nebraska. So if he's in Nebraska, it's probably the right Doug. He might even listen. So Doug, if you're out there listening, <laughs> drop me an email if I haven't already sent you one and let's get together and do an episode. Yeah, and I'm the annoying girl that never registered for next week because I'm selling cattle instead. (laughs) After I emailed him twice. So that was good. In the winter. In the winter. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe if we get a day off, we'll go take care of that. Yeah. So tell me about um dogs. You use a lot of dogs. Yeah, we do. Um, we honest to goodness would never get out of our forest permits if we didn't have dogs. Um, I use my little girl here she's um I use collies myself um a lot of people don't like them because they say they don't bite enough but in this country you don't need a dog that bites you need a dog that has really good feel that makes sense and I'm used to again down south I know I keep saying that but it seems like the trend down there I have seen dogs that have a whole lot of bite which I get that you have brush and I think, I think, I think training dogs with more bite is the wrong direction, but I also don't use a dog every day. Yeah. I mean, there's applications for it. Don't get me wrong. Um, but our big thing here is, I mean, we can go out with our dogs and three of us could move easily, probably 700, close to a thousand steers between dogs and three people horseback. Um, so again, it saves so many miles on horses, it saves so many miles on people. And then a lot of our stuff in the forest, we run in a lot of, um, Aspen sagebrush complex type broken up mots of them, if you will. Um, and again, you might be gathering a 5,000 acre pasture and you can't go trot over to every Aspen mot and look around in there. Um, so the dogs really, really help with that. Um, training them if I say go out and search I mean my dog will be gone I mean she hunts for them until she finds them comes back um and that's the big thing and you know too I used to be super against dogs in the um in the cells down on the meadows doing the high density and I strongly disagree with that now um I've gotten this dog to where I can get her out in front of them so moving them by myself there's that you know the argument of um move your cattle, don't drag them 
or however it is people say that, but like don't trade them necessarily to the whistle or to the buggy because they just get sour and they just run past you and they don't keep eating. They just are running around, especially yearlings. You don't get a hold of them. You just open the gate and let mayhem commence. And that's one thing that I found with this dog um, is I, if I can get her around front of them and just bend the front of them, like just there, bring them back around into me, those cattle will be grazing before I leave, um, which is not necessarily a problem that we've had in the past. It's just like, it always seems that there's more walking for a while before they really think about eating but she's gotten it to where I can still be in that gate. She'll run out in front of 2000 head and bend the front end of them. And they're turned back eating before I've got the wire gate closed. Just, just shift their attention from that yes. run mode back to yes. different direction and maybe look for a bite to eat. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the application that I always saw that was wrong is when in cells for me, just for us and how we do it. If the dog's behind them, cell to cell, not a good thing for the bulk of the herd. Now, if you've got to clean up, you know, tell her to bring them to the gate because you don't want to be driving your four-wheeler everywhere, great. But it seems to me if you're moving the herd with a dog behind them when they already want to move anyways, probably a little too much energy. Yep, I would agree with that. Wait, I, I thinking about like how to talk about how we move. Cause just had to you know do one the other day that I'm thinking of. They were already kind of on the side. We were moving from a 75 acre paddock to a 40 acre paddock. Okay. Not a big deal. Had a 20 foot gate and barbed wire to go through, not even hot wire to beat. And I don't know why this happens, but like it always seems to be when I have a scheduled move that's been on the grazing chart. <laughs> and I go out that morning to do it. Yeah. They're standing by the correct gate. Oh, like, that's that, not where that, I thought this was going, Brian. <laughs> that's happened the last three or four times. Where did where did you think it was going? I thought it was going quite the opposite way. But... Oh, that they would all leave and go somewhere <laughs> yeah. else and go off plan. Yeah. Oh, that happens too, but not lately. Yeah. So it was just last year when they were trying to graze the long pasture. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they were they were kind of all there by the gate. So I like to approach. I like to come to the herd from the pasture that they're going into okay yeah okay. so i go into the pasture they're coming into and i come and so they see me coming from there mm -hmm. you know, I go open the gate and depending on where the cattle are maybe i'll go in and i'll and i'll call them I, you know i just i got a good set of lungs call them yeah, just, yell, come on. just yell come on cows and they all start to come slowly and what what I've been training my intern to do is to go with the initial group or lead the initial group through the gate. But then after you go through the gate to come in and turn around and set, and that will, and depend on where you set in relation to the gate or the fence or whatever, you know, those cattle will come in and they'll bend. Mm -hmm. And like back up the, I see what you're saying. Or not back up or just your presence there. Like if you're a little farther off in the distance, kind of centered up oh. on the gate, they'll kind of come up to us. And as they get closer, they'll start to settle in and go back to grazing. Hmm. It's yeah. And maybe it's because I've had like, and the herd that was on it, they've been here since October. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've probably got 
40, 50, 60 odd moves on them since October. Yeah. Yeah. And they just, they just settle in. They don't, they don't run to the gate. They don't run through the gate. That's nice. And I think that maybe some of what you're seeing is, is behavior in your lens. Like I said, I'm dealing with cows. Yeah. Yeah. I'm dealing with all older cows and you know, these animals remember everything that's ever been done to them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. They remember everybody that's yelled at him, everybody that's thrown a rope oh, yeah. at him, everybody's stuck him with a hot shot. Yeah. I, I think they have a very strong memory for that kind of thing. And the better we are with our stockmanship and our husbandry about things like that, you know, about where the dog is, where you are, and the energy you put into the herd just to get them through the gate, the more we pay attention to these things, the faster that they settle when we move them and the lower their stress level is because we, when you're conscious of the energy you're putting in the herd, mm-hmm. you're more conscious of, of their energy. And it's becomes yeah. a lot easier to notice like, Oh, I did that. Mm-hmm. It didn't affect the ones right next to me, but it did scare some over in the middle and that caused a change in their behavior. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Hey, I wanted to ask you about, I saw your video one time. Are you a, still a bat latch guy? Um, I still have them. I haven't been using them, but mm. yeah. I'm, what was your experience? You feel like with animal performance or animal behavior using them? Uh, it took about two weeks. Oh, wow. 10 days to two weeks before all of them really got on the program. And I've had, I've got experience putting training two different groups. So I've only trained two different groups to bat latches and We made a whole, we started, I think we were doing like 10 o'clock moves. We were just having the bat latch open at 10. And then I read something that said, oh, maybe your bricks is a little bit higher, closer to solar noon, mm-hmm. a little after. So I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that sounds like about two o'clock. So we'll just aim for something in the early afternoon that should be really close to peak photosynthesis. And I just kind of scheduled on, settled on two o'clock. It took about it took them a while to get used to it in the mornings, but we'd already been moving them in the mornings. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a small change for them, but instead of, you know, rolling up a piece of poly wire, they had to go through a fairly narrow gate. That that's the biggest drawback to how I was using the bat latches. Yeah. The springs aren't very long, but there's other ways to skin the cat, right? So them. I've seen guys, um, use those uh, to pull the, to raise the fence up, use the spring and the bat latch. Like oh. you, you put the spring up on a pole and you have yeah. it come down to the fence and the bat latch is holding the, holding it down. Yeah. And then when a bat latch goes off, it pulls the fence up high enough that the cattle can walk underneath of it. Nice. That I've is- seen that done. I've seen them set to set to close a gate on the spring, like close a 10 foot gate using oh, the spring, yeah. release the spring and it went and closed the gate. So there's, they've got a lot of different uses. Um, so back to what I was saying, it took seven, 10, maybe two weeks is, is about the longest that'll take them to get used to that bat latch. And with, with anything else, when you're transitioning to something that's totally unfamiliar to the cattle, they're not going to know what to do with it the first couple of times they see it. You're just going to have to show them. And for us, it was walking out. It was just being there when the latch opened and walking back and forth through the gate a couple times. Um, something I think helped with that was on that spring gate, 
we put a bunch of flagging tape. We put yellow and blue flagging tape on that spring gate. So that was another extra visual indicator um, that, the, that the fence wasn't there for the cattle. And I have several videos of it. You know, as we kind of got down to the you know midsummer, the first year we were using them and we were moving at two o'clock, it kind of got to be a game. <laughs> like right. it kind of got to be a game to see if I could get out there and get in a position where they weren't paying attention to me and watch the gate open and watch them all move. And I tell you, like once they got, once they got used to it, once they understood what was going on with the bat latches and the polywire, it was really cool to see that gate open. And within two minutes, a hundred head of cattle were in a different paddock yeah, heads awesome. down grazing. That was, awesome. it was cool. So was, was, did that answer your question about battle? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you kind of gave some tips on training to them and, um, thoughts, how to use them different. Cause that was one of my big concerns was the gates not big enough and two yearlings. They're just so, you know, you never know who out of the 2000 or 3002 is going to be standing there. that can hear that thing. So that's, I think that the training curve or timeline but the other good thing about your is they're probably walking around so yeah. they're gonna find it that's i've used one a couple times and they eventually move themselves but we had some ding-dongs that couldn't figure out how to get out once the main herd was on the other side they decided to tear down a poly wire and <laughs> we were creating bad habits for a period of time so it was like okay we're done with the batch latch thing for right now so we haven't tried it again yet but we need to I've got one herd approaching, one herd is heading towards the west end of my south side that's all set up for strip grazing. We'll be there in just a few more days and hopefully we'll be able to put post in the dirt. Because <laughs> oh, that might, uh, another week of 100 degrees without any moisture. I don't, like, I, I want to strip graze. Like, I, yeah. really, I want to do some strip grazing this year while I've got uh, some labor around for another month. Yeah. I don't know if we're going to be able to put, I don't know if we're going to be able to put step-ins in the dirt. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets, it gets down to, it just gets so dry. You have to really hunt like for yeah. the right oh, yeah. clump of grass or the right plant crown or put it down, yeah. like, you know, hack off a freaking yucca plant and put it right down by the yucca plant where <laughs> the root was. That's awesome. You know, I'm just afraid it'll get to where, you know, we're spending two, three hours to build 800 yeah, feet of poly wire and it's yeah. just not, yeah. not making it work. So yeah, we're going to, yeah. we're going to investigate it. We're going to look at that and, uh, and hopefully be able to make it work. Hopefully we'll get some rain. Hopefully we'll have a little bit of rain and won't be great. a struggle to put post in the dirt. It'd be great. So tell me about some of these other joint monitoring programs that you kind of mentioned earlier with, uh, with BLM and forest service. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically what we've been able to do is bring everybody together and say, hey, it's not that the way we're managing, managing these landscapes is not working. It's that we could be doing so much better. And I think that was mutually agreed upon. You know, most of these Forest Service permits are severely understocked and then have areas of severe abuse from loafing um and water and all those issues topography and all that 
Um, so we were actually able to get together and make the clear outcome objective of combining three forest permits into one herd, which would be huge, like just monumental if we were able to change that. And what that's was not interesting- like, That's not a forest service and a BLM. That's just three different forest service. Yeah, three different forest service, which they all have different dates. They all have different stock numbers and densities and all these things. But it was, hey, we know that the cumulative value is this. Why can't we combine and then manage within those permits to also meet some of those parameters? Because from the south end to the far north end, you know, the elevation's probably close to 3,000 feet and change. So obviously we need to start in the south end and work our way north. And, you know, we acknowledge all those things and mutually agree. So we agreed on parameters the Forest Service would accept. I found to be beneficial and actually create value for the ranch and the conservation district found was easy enough to actually complete it because a lot of these places we're having to pack in horseback it's not like you can take mule and take your five measuring tapes and you know whatever all your five computers and yada yada you're packing um, everything on all horse yeah <laughs> yeah and then game and fish was able to agree okay this isn't affecting wildlife or is positively affecting wildlife um, so basically what we're doing is creating a baseline of we're set stock the same way we've always been this year. Um, and we move our cattle a lot within the permits, like probably more than the Forest Service wants us to. But also last year was told we had the best Forest Service permits in Sublette County after only three years of being here. So I was like, you know what? They're, we're on to something here, folks. So that's the goal. Um, and what we're going to start doing is combine the two northernmost permits together, which everybody would tell you is the most fragile, but they have way higher precip compared to the southern end. Um, they're just at a higher elevation and then combine the third and it'll be five years worth of monitoring. So year one, set stock, same situation, baseline monitoring. Year two, initial combination of two northernmost permits, your three second year of monitoring on those two northernmost permits, make a conclusion or defer to year four. So, okay, we don't see any negative change. Is That's their expectation. That's what's really frustrating too. Not that we see any positive change, but okay, you're not destroying things out here. So if you want to do this, I guess we'll let you do it. <laughs> then, yeah, then fourth year, they can defer and or allow us to bring in the third permit. But the ultimate design of the project is to combine them all. And what's really interesting, I don't know if you're familiar with the green drift or the upper green. It's the largest cattle drive still intact in the United States. So it occurs, it's crazy. It occurs right out our gate. They drive cattle 80 plus miles from the desert mm -hmm, to the high country for the winter, or excuse me, gosh, for the summer, they go winter on the desert. And they basically come off of a massive BLM permit that is set stocked the same month, every year, go up. They do run four units up in the forest service and they do a really great job monitoring the cattle. They have camp men living in teepees up there with them all the time. There's 13,000 head of animals that come up this thing. Massive, it's massive. It runs basically, you should get on a map after this call and look where Cora, Wyoming is and look where Dubois is, all of that acreage all of it. Um, and then they run them basically in four different units. And then each of those units has a pasture rotation system. But what's really interesting and one thing we've been talking about is how can this pilot project help 
um, to manage those cattle better to where they're not, they basically just have like some places only have a two pasture unit rotation and they're in there every year. They just switch which pasture they go into first. You know, they that's split not up a rotation. That's an oscillation. No, yeah, no, it's not a rotation. That's right. <laughs> it's exactly, it's an oscillation. Um, and the other massive issue that they have is predation. They plan to lose 15 to 20% to bear kill a year. Yes. Okay. The riders can't hardly keep up with the cows to keep up with the bears, to keep up with, you know, all this, it's mostly pears. They're picking off calves. Um, but one of the huge things was, okay, what if we actually could prove you can improve your landscape, you could increase your stock numbers and, oh, Hey, by the way, there's one herd, you know, where they're at, you know, if the grizzlies killed them and they're probably not going to come in there um with that many bunched cattle together it's usually a pair that's off and alone um they can get compensated but a forest rider has to identify um the kill and that's it's crazy i've never learned so much about how to identify how something was killed and by what it's like crime scene investigation but animals and they come up dude it's called a wildlife investigator they investigate theme the cause of death and then you can get compensated but hey, guess what? The federal government is just funneling a whole bunch of money into paying people because of a mismanaged situation so that they'll keep grazing up there. It's crazy. Oh, the so, government paying people for mismanagement? Yeah. <laughs> I what? know. Can you imagine that? When have they ever done that? So anyways, the hope is that this project can actually create some real policy change for the county and accelerate the timeline. So basically, if this project doesn't help or something else doesn't go through in the meantime, we're not going to see any shift at all in management strategy for another 15 years, minimum. It's crazy. It's crazy. And how many acres, how many acres, how much water resource, you know, I mean, not to get on the water resource, you know, issue in the West and with the Colorado River Pact, but I mean, it's about to be crazy enough. They're not going to have stock water allowances, even out of a river. That whole Colorado River Compact situation, I don't know if it's a can of worms, if it's a powder keg that's about ready to explode. It's a powder keg, I strongly feel. I mean, it's... It's basically, so the, so the issue is, number one, everybody's let the water get so far down because we're watering golf courses and we're have Vegas in the desert and all this insanity. And by the way, why the heck are we storing water in a reservoir in a desert? You want to talk about evaporation, all these issues that we have present. Okay. And it's gotten to the point. So basically I can't remember the actual year of formation. So I don't want to say the wrong year, but 19 something, whenever the Colorado river pack came in early 1900s, you have a water right past that 1900 and whatever, no water for you in agriculture, zero water. I'm not saying flood irrigation is a great thing. I am, however, saying that flood irrigation holds a heck of a lot of water in the soil and 70% of that water is an in-stream return flow. Yep. The reality though, is a lot of those water rights that are past 1900 and whatever make up a vast majority or quite a bit of production that you're gonna see in the West. You know, a lot, quite a, I think it's going to have some impact on some food supply. The second thing is too, people are actually going to be metered to their ditch levels. Unless you are near a population center, nobody is metered to a ditch level. Okay. And when so-and-so's grandpa put that in with a mule team 
a hundred years ago and he said oh i think it's pulling about x amount of cfs out of this source on these dates he had no clue okay and that ditch there's probably no sub table anywhere near what it was a hundred years ago okay so you probably need three times the legal limit of water so this is what's really interesting even if a water right stays attached to a landscape many 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 water rights in the west are going to become dysfunctional you won't actually be able to use the water in proper place because, because the water's just not, not there it's not there it's just not there and i'm not saying that it's the most ethical use i it 100 could be improved but what's absolutely insane is you're going to drain the sponge you're going to take it downstream you're going to put it in a lake in a desert you're going to give the people of vegas power and the people of Tucson a golf course. What return is there on that? Well, it's yeah. it, it certainly contributes to the economy of Tucson with that golf course and you know all the people that we can live there and you know all the fruit trees that we eat in the desert southwest. How are you gonna have a drink of water? You know, I mean, people I just what so you know the, the rancher can cry victim all day long. Oh, I won't be able to have hay. Oh, I won't be able to this, you know, adapt your management, whatever. My argument is if you don't put the water in the ground and store it, you're only going to lose more and more and more. And guess what? Eventually there's not going to be any more water to come downstream. So earlier I brought up that, you know, the, the extirpation of the beaver for mm -hmm. European hats. Mm -hmm. And I understand that. I feel like I have a good understanding of that in the context of the plain states like from the front range east to the Mississippi. Okay. I'm mm -hmm. not going to, not going to say I'm an expert from Texas to North Dakota either. Like sure. I've, I've got a pretty narrow, like narrow circle that I feel like I know a little bit about. But what I wonder is what, what the Colorado river look like in say 1650 or 1500 or even oh, yeah. 1800 before they started messing with it. Oh Yeah. And how I, much more water not only the river itself but the surrounding acreage again the sponge yeah and how that's much water did you let go and that's kind of what i'm getting at with the beavers yes because you know, they come in it might only look like there's an extra foot of water there they but what they've the really sponge. done is they've moved that that water table up yep. several feet yep. up the whole freaking valley yep they create the sponge oh yeah they, they store the surface water, they trap the erosion. And there's only one, yep. if you've got sediment suspended in water, there's only one way to get it out. You got to yep. slow the water down. How do you do that? Yep. With a dam. Yep. Anyway. And uh, now what we're going to do is leave it all in to rip through there. Again, to go to a storage in the middle of a desert. And we're not going to spread any of it. It's crazy. The thing, that, the, the thing that blows my mind about dams is, yeah, they're sediment traps. So we built all these dams on the rivers in the West. I mean, even in the Midwest, everywhere we built dams everywhere and we're tapping mm -hmm. them for hydropower and recreation yeah. and drinking water. Yeah. What happens when they fill up with dirt? Yeah. Oh, that's yes. <laughs> what happens when they fill up with dirt or there's just even no water there? There's a, uh, oh, we'll, we'll get right back to the Colorado river. There's a, there's a reservoir in Kansas. It's up close to uh, Manhattan, Kansas, home of Kansas state university. Mm -hmm. It's called Tuttle Creek, Tuttle Creek Reservoir. It was built back in the 60s. I've been there. 
I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, upstream of Tuttle Creek, there's a lot of commodity farming, and they haven't changed any of their soil management or pesticide or herbicide management practices. And I saw a study, I think it's probably two years old now, that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers spends about 10 times the amount of money per year <laughs> that it originally cost to build the dam 60 years ago. They out. spend 10 times that every year to drain or to dredge out less than 10 percent yeah. of the sediment that accumulates every year yeah like that sounds right why wouldn't you do that well the scary <laughs> thing is like they figured that it's already 60 percent full of dirt oh yeah yeah well and not to mention every other <sighs> chemical and you know who knows what that's coming off of those farm fields down in there Oh, those chemicals are perfectly safe, Katie. They're perfectly safe. They have no effect on human population whatsoever. So crazy. I got it's a bridge so for crazy. sale, too, if you believe that that was all true. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about Colorado River and water in the West. And A, I think it, one of the big problems is Colorado River flows were vastly overestimated. Or at least that's what they're saying now. Well, I mean, I can definitely buy that, that, you know, we vastly overestimated the flows. And why wasn't that thought of in the first place? Like, okay, if we're saying the river flows this much, we don't ever want to plan to take all of that water out of the river. No. And they allocated every drop that was supposed to be in the river. Yep. And it turns out it's what, like 30 to 50% more water than is there on average? Yeah, it's crazy. Well, and two, I just don't think, again, we... <sighs> we're seeing so much less water in the system over time. And I don't think that, you know, there wasn't the hot topic of environmental change or, you know, all those discussions, if you will, a voice to facilitate some of that thought of, oh, hey, maybe we do do destructive things to the environment. And hey, maybe we are gonna have less water available. I think that was part of the major negligence in the calculus, in my opinion. You want to know my hot take on what it's caused? What? Okay. So the Southwest that we desert, diverted all the Colorado River to make irrigation in, New Mexico, Arizona. We greened the desert. We grow, grow all kinds of crap down there. That was back in the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now what is it? It's desertified because overfarmed it. All the fertility's gone. We overgrazed it. I mean, there's places in New Mexico that that lost two to three feet of topsoil in the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. cool. Before that, were there beavers there? You know, what, I, I mean, it, I don't know. And I don't, I've never even been to Arizona, so I'm not even going to like try to conjecture, but it's a thought like. Were there beavers in the Southwest? Did they have water stopped up? Were they controlling the water cycle? What did it look like in Arizona in the 1600s? Like, was it green? Was there grass? Or has it been a desert this whole time? Mm -hmm. I don't think we know, and I don't think we'll ever know, just like will we ever really understand if 60 million bison was a sustainable number for the plains or if they were headed for resource crash. Sure hard to say but it's it's pretty easy to see that we've definitely broken the water cycle in the desert southwest and my thought is 
we've broken it so bad and it's so desertified and degraded. Now, now bear with me. It kicks up a lot of dust that gets picked up by trade winds and gets blown right over where I'm at, right over where you grew up. And is that why we've been seeing, a, I would just call it, I wouldn't call it climate change or drought because the Southwest has been in drought for 15 years, but it's a creeping drought. So is that climate change? Are we settling into a new normal? And is it because we screwed up the Southwest so bad mm-hmm. that it's, that its effects are just going to keep creeping North and East? You know, this is an interesting conversation. So I was just talking to someone the other day about, um, I need to dig that article up, but I found an article in this individual I'd run into had read the same article as well about tree ring data um, from historical drought. And I know tree ring data can be highly variable and there's all these, you know, arguments about it not being fully conclusive, but anyways, and it was suggesting in the Western United States I can't remember how many years ago it was like three or 400 years ago something like that really long far off um far past there had been a drought that we at the current percent you know if you want to index it i think we're at like 60 something percent of that drought the historic drought level right now in the american west it was crazy um and that's, again, that's really scary because i've got like I've got just over 25% of the precipitation I should have. Well, it, but what is, I should have, you know, like, what is that actually based off of average of the last 140 years? Well, which is, which means it's normal. What is normal besides a setting on a dryer? Well, in part of this conversation we had was like, okay, we, we look at weather in like five year, 10 year, 25 year, 50 year. And she it was interesting too talking about how like short-sighted people in America are like we have no real history you know like way way back and uh again it's like well I wouldn't think it's that hard to imagine that there wasn't just this massive catastrophic drought that long ago when you really think about it like why is this the why are our thresholds measured in 150 to 200 years like this you know, it's been, this country, these, you know, this area has been around for way, way longer than that. Why couldn't there have been a worse drought even back then? And it was just an interesting thought. And her point was too, like, okay, every time that an extreme happens, it's the first time that it's maybe been documented in modern society, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't previously occurred at the same, if not a more extreme extent. It was just an interesting conversation with this lady. That, I mean, that's an excellent point. It's it's kind of like everything that we're experiencing has already happened somewhere else in the universe yeah. at some time. All this weather has happened before. It's just we might not have been here to see it. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I really appreciate that. You know, there's so many people that are like, oh, man-made cause climate change. You know what? I don't even think that the stuff we've done has even really started to affect the climate. I think we're probably on the precipice of seeing really ramified effects in the future. Well, we're, we're getting close to time. We'll have to come back again in a couple of months and talk about, talk about how we can make it through the future and what ranching in the future, what, how to adapt our businesses to a changing climate. 
Here we go. It's an excellent question. Everybody should be wondering all the time. Yeah. So did I forget to ask anything today? I don't think so. I feel like we, uh, we kind of pretty broadly covered the bases there. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And it's always great to visit with you. Well, you too, Katie. I always, you know, I've, I've kind of been, if you have a fan club, I'd probably be a member. You know, I, I've kind of been following you along ever since uh, you knew Deb and Emery back there three, four years ago. And I met you out at grass fed exchange in California. I've just been kind of, kind of keeping an eye on you and I'm impressed with what I see. Well, thank you. That's very generous of you, but I enjoy, I enjoy and appreciate the work that you're doing. I always think it would be a great thing to do, but I don't actually do it. So I appreciate you organizing people to try to create some change. So I can't do sell by marketing either. So it's all kind <laughs> okay, of folk. maybe we could team up on something one day. <laughs> maybe it takes all kind of folk to make the world go around, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any, anybody you want to give a shout out to? Oh, yes. Um, I, we were talking earlier and I, Brian had a uh, mistake in thinking that I was a talented gunsmith individual and I am not, but he's actually thinking of my husband. Um, and that was one thing we were talking about earlier too, is, you know, living in these remote areas and uh, these landscapes is just like how, and there's not these population centers, you know, it, the families that we have that come along with us and doing um, undertaking maybe some of these tasks, but yeah, my husband, Justin, he actually runs a gun business out of the house. Um, and he does, he's a gunsmith and an FFL and an SOT and whatever all the other acronyms are. So he's, he's doing that um, here at the house and um, we're trying to balance a wild, wild one-year-old and, working outside and building guns and just living the Wyoming lifestyle, you know? So anyways, uh, we definitely couldn't do it without him. Awesome. All right. So where, where can people go to get in touch with you or to uh, find out more if they want to. Oh, with me. Yeah. Um, I am really, so email is honestly the best. If you really want to talk to me, Katie, K A T I E at bar cross B A R C R O S S.com. Um, I do have social media, but I don't use it. So don't try to contact me there. Okay. <laughs> um, email. Husband's but, gun business is on Facebook though, right? Oh yeah. Well, he actually has a website. He's actually legitimate. Um, he's 610 defenseworks.com. So yeah. I'll make sure I find a link to that and get it in the show notes for you. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Six, we keep defense. saying we're going to do a ranch website because we have an internship that's pretty, it's grown quite a bit, but um, we don't have one. So no social media either. <laughs> Sometimes you're better off without it because there can be a lot of, um, it can take up a lot of mental bandwidth that uh, you're probably good. putting, you're probably putting to work, creating a lot more value. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I did the whole Facebook and Instagram building and media marketing company with the beef company. And honestly, I, it was my least favorite part of the entire thing. And so anyways, when I came here, Jason was like, do you want to get a website? It was like, absolutely not. So <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that music before. We're not playing that song. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So anyways, well, thank you so much, Brian. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for your time today, Katie. 
Y'all gang, have a great week. Thanks. You too. Bye.